What happens to us after we die? That is the question that the Sunday Times newspaper in the UK asked its readers to write in with their answers to. What happens to you after you die? Here's what some of the replies were. I believe that our soul hangs around between earth and heaven until our funeral so that we'll be able to see our earthly farewell. Another person said, I like to think of life after death as sleep, the grand sleep. Someone else said, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, full stop, that's it, nothing more. Someone else wrote in, as a Christian and a church warden, I ought to be confident in my faith in the afterlife, but I'm not. There are so many questions. And in any event, what's in store? If there is an afterlife, is it something we should look forward to or fear? And another person simply put, what happens when we die? I try to avoid thinking about it. The Sunday Times received hundreds of answers to what happens after we die. Many of them really seemed to be asking for an answer rather than giving one. Many of them were uncertain, fearful. Most of them simply said what they were hoping would happen rather than what they knew would happen. I don't know, maybe you're a bit like that yourself. Maybe you're here this morning and you're actually a little unsure about what really will happen to you after you die. Friends, if you are here as a Christian, if you, as we heard last week, hold firmly to the message that Christ died for our sins and rose on the third day, God does not want you to be confused about what will happen to you after you die. God actually wants you to have a firm and confident hope for the future. That's what it is all about. Mind you, like lots of the passages we've already had a look at in 1 Corinthians, this passage comes up because of a misunderstanding that's going on within the Corinthian church. Verse 12 takes us pretty much to the heart of the confusion. Verse 12, the first, reading, the first verse of the reading, But if it, is, if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection from the dead? See, from that verse it sounds like there's an idea floating around the Corinthian church that there is no resurrection from the dead at all. Now, I'm not quite sure how a bunch of Christians could have thought that and not really quite sure the exact form of this idea. Maybe some of them think there is no such thing as life after death whatsoever. Maybe some of them are thinking that there is a life after death but that we will simply exist as bodiless spirits floating around in heaven somehow. A bit like Casper the ghost. You know, we, we won't actually have a body as such. Whatever the precise details, some of them are saying there is no resurrection from the dead. And in this passage, Paul wants to show how mistaken that idea is. And he does it in three main steps. He firstly talks about the certainty of the resurrection, resurrection body. He then talks about the characteristics of the resurrection body. And then he thirdly talks about the consequences of, the of getting a resurrection body. And look, it's a, bit, it's a long passage, isn't it? There's lots and lots of ideas. We're not going to touch down on everything. Hopefully we can nevertheless get an appreciation of the big flow of ideas 
And the first big idea that pops out is that getting a resurrection body is a certainty. Back at verse 12, Paul's point is that Jesus' own resurrection confirms it. Verse 12, again, But if it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? You get the point? Massive inconsistency to say on the one hand that you believe that Jesus raised from the dead, but on the other hand say that there's no such thing as our rising from the dead. Paul presses the point at verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ hasn't been raised, well, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Feel the force of the argument. If there is no resurrection from the dead, should have stayed home, had a longer sleep in this morning, especially because it's daylight saving. Because if there is no resurrection from the dead, Jesus has not been raised from the dead. His body is still lying in a grave somewhere in Palestine. We're following a lie. Being a Christian is a waste of time. Becoming a minister on my part, that was a bad career move because it's all wasted if there's no resurrection from the dead. Oh, but hang on, Jesus did rise from the dead, didn't he? We heard about that last week. He rose from the dead after three days. Heaps of people saw him. He appeared to over 500 people at the one time. And in that one trailblazing act, Jesus not only proved that there's resurrection from the dead, he's prepared the way for others to be resurrected from the dead as well. That's what Paul's getting at in verse 20, where he describes the risen Christ as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That's a farming term. It refers to the first produce, the first bit of the harvest. So you might have noticed on the news this week, uh, this last week, that the first pallet of bananas were auctioned in Sydney for charity. Now everyone is looking forward to the price of bananas finally coming down because the rest of the harvest is about to hit. We've had the first fruits, heaps more to come. Well, Jesus' resurrection is the first fruits from the dead. We've had Jesus, heaps more resurrections to come. Our resurrection is to come. A bodily resurrection. Not a Casper-like, put-your-hand-through-the-body, vapory spirit without a body floating around the place. Our hope is in a resurrected body in a new creation. Move down to verse 29, where, he, where Paul wants to explain this further or confirm it further. Now, if there's no resurrection... What will those do who are baptised for, uh, for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptised for them? Now, this is a little bizarre. Somehow, the Corinthians have picked up the idea of being baptised on behalf of dead people. I think the Mormons still do it. It's silly. Not the first time the Corinthians have done anything silly with... They seem to make a habit of it. It's silly because, as we heard last week at the beginning of the chapter, we're not saved by being baptised. We're certainly not saved by someone else being baptised on our behalf. We are saved by trusting in what Jesus has done for us, that he died for our sins and rose on the third day. It's a dumb idea. But Paul's point here is not so much to point out what a dumb idea it is. He simply wants to make the point that they are being completely inconsistent in their practices. 
Because on the one hand, you say that there's no resurrection, and on the other hand, you're getting baptised for dead people. Why would you do that if the dead aren't going to be raised, he said? Why are people being baptised for? The dead will be raised. And even their own practices, as stupid as they are, support it. And therefore, as for me, Paul says in verse 32, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained if the dead are not raised? See, Paul's point is he staked his whole life on the fact that there is a resurrection. He staked his whole life on the fact that there is more to come because it's a certainty that there's more to come. We have Jesus' own resurrection as the first fruits to prove it. But all this raises a natural question, which is that if a resurrection body is a certainty, and we've got Jesus' resurrection to show that, what will be the characteristics of our new body? Will we look the same as we do now? What will our resurrected body be like? Will we be resurrected when we're aged 18 or when we're 25? Or what, what about babies who have tragically died? What age will they be resurrected at? Will, will their parents recognise them? If we don't have similar sort of bodies to now, will we recognise each other? Now, they're the sort of questions I suspect a lot of us have had from time to time. Well, here we go. The Apostle Paul's going to give his answer to that exact issue. Verse 35. But someone may say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they come? How foolish. Which is probably not quite the start of an answer that we would have liked. But he goes on and does spell out some things. Verse 39. All flesh is not the same. Men have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds another. Fish another. There's also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies. And the splendour of the heavenly bodies is one kind. The splendour of the earthly bodies is is another and say for example the sun has one kind of splendor the moon another the stars another the star differs from star in splendor so will it be with the resurrection from the dead the body that is sown is perishable it's raised imperishable it's sown in dishonor it's raised in glory it's sown in weakness it's raised in power it's sown a natural body it's raised a spiritual body now those verses to some extent are frustrating aren't they um here we are, Paul's finally going to say what sort of body we're going to get and he starts talking about fish and birds and sun and moon. It's all a little cryptic and we'd love a little bit more detail than that. Paul's basic point is, well, it doesn't really matter. It's a sort of a foolishness to pursue those sorts of questions. All you need to know is that the resurrection body we have will be utterly appropriate. That in the new creation, we will have a body that is suited to the new creation. That in a glorious, imperishable, eternal, new earth, your body will be glorious. Your body will be imperishable. It will be immortal. In a perfect new world, your body will be perfectly suited. And that in itself is enough to know. But we can gleam a little bit more. He talks about it being imperishable and immortal. I presume that means that our resurrected bodies won't wear out, which will be lovely. Although perhaps verse 44 tells us the most exciting thing, I suspect, when he says that it will be raised a spiritual body. And by that word spiritual, please don't think again of Casper the ghost and a bodily spirit floating around in the presence of God somehow. That would actually contradict the stuff he's already just said. 
by spiritual there in verse 44, I think he's saying that our, spirit, that our bodies will be empowered by God's spirit. That our bodies will no longer be controlled by the, the sort of sinful desires of our present natural bodies. We will instead be fully, utterly controlled by the spirit of God. And in that sense, he goes on to point out, that we'll actually take on the likeness of Jesus. Verse 48. As was the earthly man, that's Adam, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the man from heaven, that's Jesus, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the likeness of the earthly man, so we shall bear the likeness of the man from heaven. He's saying that we're going to be like Jesus. And I suspect it's, again, related back to this idea that we will have spiritual bodies. We will have a spirit-controlled body. Just as Jesus uh, has, after our resurrection, God's own spirit will so saturate us that our bodies will be filled with thoughts and desires that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable. And so to a church where some people are saying, oh, there's no resurrection from the dead, Paul says, you've got to be kidding. Of course there will be. Jesus' resurrection not only proves that, it paves the way for it. There will come a time when the followers of Jesus will be changed like that and we will receive a body that will be perfectly suited to the perfect new creation, a body no longer enslaved to the cravings of sinful nature, a body now fully energised by God's own spirit. And so we will bear the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. And that carries with it consequences. Consequences that revolve around the fact that our lives are no longer at the mercy of death. Verse 51. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We won't all sleep. We will all be changed in a flash in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where our death is your victory, where our death is your sting. Well, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This chapter finishes with a sort of explosion of celebration about the fact that Jesus' victory over death liberates us, his people. We are liberated from a life where we are at the mercy of sin and death. Sin is described there as the sting of death. In verse 56. In other words, sin is, is the sort of trap of death. That once we sin, once the sting goes in, death snaps around us. Because of our sin, death now becomes justified, our justified punishment. But by dying on the cross, Jesus has robbed death of its sting. Sin has no hold on us anymore because as we heard last week, on the cross, Jesus took the punishment we should have received. Jesus submerged himself in the death we deserved. And then on the third day, he broke through from it and he did it to show us his power. And he did it to show us that for those of us who follow him, friends, your death is not final. 
and therefore your life is not futile. I know I've told this story before. It's one that happened to me before I went to Bible college and I suspect it's one that God has used in my life so as to help me feel the power of verses like uh, these ones before us this morning. It was a time when I was sitting in the intensive care ward of Royal North Shore Hospital in Sydney, uh, waiting for a close friend to come out of a coma that she'd been in. And in the intensive care ward, a complete stranger sat down next to me. I'd never laid eyes on this bloke before in my life. And for a little while, we just sat there in silence in our own thoughts. And then this complete stranger turned to me and simply said, what is this life all about? Because his daughter was dying in the next room. And suddenly, everything that he thought was important in life totally evaporated. As he sat next to his daughter's bed, everything he thought was important now didn't mean a thing. Didn't care what his pay scale was. Didn't care what his uni grade average was. Didn't matter what was on telly that night. Didn't matter who was going to win the grand final. As he sat next to his dying daughter, staring into death, this guy now questioned everything he'd been living for. And death will do that to you if you think about it. What's the point of slaving away at school or uni? Uh, what's the point of getting a business up and running if death can just come and rip it away from you? What, what, what's the point of being married and raising a family when, when death can just rip a husband and a wife apart and rip parents from their kids? Death will pull the rug from under you. It is an obscene thing. As we saw just this last week, death can break into your world unexpectedly. It respects no one. Doesn't matter how rich you are, doesn't matter how poor you are, doesn't matter how young you are, how influential or popular or gifted or sporty, all of a sudden death can break in and all meaning in life just seems to evaporate. It's enough to make you turn to a complete stranger and ask for help. And friends, can you hear the, the celebration of this passage? Can you breathe in, just, I don't know, the smelling salts and just clear your head with the news that your death as a follower of Jesus, it's not the end. A new resurrection body awaits in a new creation. And therefore, verse 58, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Your labour in the Lord, it's not in vain. That is a very big idea. Your labour in the Lord is not in vain. Friends, if you're here this morning and you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you own that message that we thought about last week, that Christ died for your sin, that he rose on the third day, that means you are called to a life that is something far bigger than being a happy little consumer with a mortgage and 2.1 kids. We are called on to do things that contribute to all eternity. 
Our labour in the law in the Lord is not in vain. There's a bigness to that idea that if you open your eyes to it, your present life now actually takes on a whole new dimension. Whoever you are, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, whether you're unemployed, whether you're a single mum, whether you're a student, whether you're lonely, whether you've got more friends that you can take a stick at, whether you're happily married, whether you're unhappily married, whether you're young, whether you're old, whoever you are, if you are one of God's people, you are living a life that can make a real difference, a life that is not in vain, perhaps even now in ways you can't begin to imagine. Simply coming along this morning, so as to encourage others in their faith. Sitting at home, reading the Bible with your children. Being at the back now, looking after children for us. Dropping in on someone during the week because you've noticed that they're not here and you want to know, you want to just make sure that they're going on okay in their faith. Talking to your neighbour over the fence about Jesus. Inviting your friends along to a Christmas showcase. It may not feel at the time as if you're contributing to much, but you are. You're working to something that will last forever because, friends, Christ has defeated death. A new creation is coming and in a flash, in a twinkling of an eye, you will be changed into a glorious, imperishable, immortal, spirit-controlled person. So brothers and sisters, stand firm. Don't let anything move you. Give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because it's not in vain. I'll pray. Father, thank you for reminding us of the living hope that you have given us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Father, thank you for the promise of a glorious, immortal, imperishable, spirit-controlled life in a wondrous new creation. Father, there are days that we long for that to come so much, so deeply. But until it does, please help us to stand firm. Let nothing move us. And by your word and your spirit, help us to give ourselves fully to your work. Amen.